Well, a very good evening. My name is Ben, and as Callum said, I get to serve as a ministry apprentice here at Charlotte Chapel. Please do keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 9. That's on page 1040, and it's not too late. If you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up, and someone will gladly bring you one. As we approach the Word of God, let's pray. Dear God, as we come to your Word, we need your help. In fact, we are wholly dependent on it. Lord, by your grace, give us ears and hearts ready to hear and receive what you'll be teaching us tonight, that it might sink deep into our very souls. And Lord, help us see Jesus. And Lord, help me as I seek to teach it faithfully, that Lord, overall, would our short time together, would your glorious name be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder... Have you ever been so consistently wrong? It's actually funny. I handed in an assignment once at university only to receive one comment and one comment only written across the top. That can only be a good or a bad thing, can't it? In red pen was written wrong at every turn. Come to my office. I'd shamelessly tried every single way I possibly could to answer the problem before me but for every step in my working I took forward, apparently I took two steps back. I fundamentally lacked understanding, and as a result, I'd failed pretty badly. Perhaps you feel like that this evening in your walk with the Lord. For every bit of progress you seem to make, it feels like you're taking two steps backwards. Well, in our passage this evening, we're going to see the disciples actually make a pretty poor effort of the title disciple, follower of Jesus, as they consistently get it wrong. And my prayer this evening that, is that in our unbelieving generation, God will give us confidence in the greatness of Jesus, 2020 vision of his mission, and a clearer understanding of what service of him involves. Because this evening, we're going to see actually the exact opposite as the disciples fail in three areas. They lack faith, they lack understanding, and they lack humility. That's the roadmap for where we're going, so let's get into it. If you were here two weeks ago, when actually Calm preached to us, you will have remembered that Jesus was up a mountain, where with three of his disciples, we have seen him transfigured, appearing bright as a flash of lightning alongside the Old Testament greats of Moses and Elijah. And not only that, we heard God audibly speak, declaring Jesus as his son with the clear message for us to listen to him. Luke gave us no doubt, didn't he? It was a clear and emphatic picture of Jesus' glory. And it's important we keep that in the forefront of our minds because it's against that backdrop that we'd see the disciples get it so, so wrong. So, that's our first point this evening. The disciples lack faith as part of an unbelieving and perverse generation. We pick it up in verse 37. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man, a man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. 
I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. So Jesus and the three disciples he took up the mountain have come down from the mountain following this incredible transfiguration account. And they're met by a large crowd. In fact, immediately, Jesus is confronted again by the needs of the people. And the camera goes from this kind of wide-angle panoramic shot to focus in on one man, a man who is distraught for his only child, a son, is in grave danger. We read that he's possessed by a demon with some nasty side effects. He's having seizures, he's foaming at the mouth. Luke includes the reality that it's destroying him. This man's son is in serious trouble. And then we get this interesting detail. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Now that's kind of bizarre because if you flick back one page to verse number one of chapter nine, we read, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. Jesus has just given these guys the exact power to do this, to drive out demons and to heal people. And it started so well. Scan down to verse number six of chapter nine. So they set out, went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. So you can imagine then, as the camera kind of pulls back from the man and his desperately sick lad, we see the nine disciples who hadn't been up the mountain. Nine men standing around who just failed in the thing that they were equipped to do. They'd failed to help this man. You can picture them, can't you? Kind of eyes fixed to the floor, standing sheepishly around, perhaps pointing at each other and not themselves. One step forward, two steps back. So what's going wrong here? Well, the implication is clear. In the space of only half a chapter, the disciples have already begun to operate in their own strength, rather than in faith in the source and giver of their power, Jesus. Matthew and Mark's accounts corroborate that this failure is because of a lack of faith. They don't even pray as they attempt to heal the boy, and now the crowd are arguing with them about it. And how does Jesus respond? You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Now, straight off the bat, I don't believe that Jesus is scolding the man. Coming to Jesus in desperation for help is never a bad thing to do. In fact, it's always the best thing to do. He's even come to Jesus despite the disciples who, acting in his name, have utterly failed to help him. Certainly, though, the disciples are being rebuked. There can be no doubt of that. As they've done a few times now, they have shown a remarkable lack of faith. Remember in the boat back in chapter 8, during the storm, while they panic, Jesus rebukes the storm and then them. For what? Their lack of faith. And what is the result of this lack of faith? Well, it's chaos, it's despair, and it's bickering. And so I do think from the generality of Jesus' statement, the crowd, along with us, all these years later, are also implicated. 
for they too are part of this unbelieving and perverse generation. In fact, they've got unfortunate similarities to the Exodus generation we're reading about in the morning, who time and time again also show a lack of faith in the sovereign God. For example, as Moses comes down from the mountain from meeting with the God of glory, he finds the Israelites have created and are worshipping a golden calf. And all these years later, as Jesus descends from this visible display of the glory of God, sinful men haven't got any better. And Jesus is rightly frustrated as he's met with the unbelief and sinfulness that he has already put up with the entirety of his ministry. This encounter, though, serves to highlight where the disciples failed, Jesus succeeds. In fact, they're clearly contrasted against each other as we see the frailty and imperfection of the disciples. We see all the clearer the power and the perfection of God in Jesus. The glorious God of the mountain still cares for the needs of the people below. And he not only compassionately compares, he, unlike the disciples, has ultimate power to heal this boy and does so miraculously with ease. The spirit is rebuked and with a word the boy is better and handed back to his overjoyed father. And the crowd rightly marvel. One encouragement that despite our poor discipleship, our often weak and faltering faith, we have this marvelously capable and compassionate God. And that his work isn't dependent on our ability. That even as the disciples got in their own way, Jesus in his grace provided healing and restoration. And like the crowd, we should marvel. This is why Luke has written that we might know the certainty of who Jesus is and why he came. The marvelous glory of Jesus come down to provide restoration. And as we've seen throughout this series, he has the power and the authority over all, shown again here. How long will he stay and put up with humanity? With this unbelieving and perverse generation? Well, long enough to provide a physical healing for this boy, as we've seen, but crucially, long enough to provide a spiritual healing for this very same unbelieving and perverse generation. Which takes us to our second point and our second failing of disciples who lack understanding of the Savior's mission. That's verse 43b to 45. Read with me. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. While the crowd marvels at what Jesus has done, he reveals again what will be the most marvelous act in history. Jesus is going to die. In fact, these couple of verses summarize what was previously said just before in verses 21 to 27. Either side of God commanding that we listen to Jesus on top of the mountain, we get the clear explanation that he's going to die. 
And interestingly, the disciples still don't seem to get it, do they? They fundamentally fail to understand the meaning of Jesus' words. They've seen closer than anyone his power. And it's, it's dawning on them who he actually is. The penny dropped for Peter in verse 20 as he calls him the Messiah, the Savior. And yet they cannot comprehend, they cannot wrap their heads around the fact that the greatness of Jesus will be displayed ultimately and forever in his death and then his resurrection. That the Savior must suffer. This is the ultimate deliverance plan for God's people that our series in Exodus points us to. Luke tells us it's actually been hidden from them, a reality that's repeated in chapter 18. If you think this sounds unfair, perhaps even harsh on the disciples, well, they've not exactly been quick on the uptake previously. And here, out of fear, they don't even ask Jesus about it. Maybe it's, you know, fear of their pride being hurt. Maybe they're scared of being embarrassed about not knowing what's going on here. But either way, their fear gets in the way and they do not come to Jesus for help. Instead, they continue to uh, choose to continue in their confusion. They're not doing well, are they? The disciples' failure in our passage so far actually highlights the great problem of humanity blind, incapable, unbelieving. And unfortunately, we can't sit back in our chairs and scoff at their failure, for it is all of our realities too. We each reject God, and we, like the disciples, were or are still blind, failing to see Jesus for who he is. We are incapable of dealing with the chaos around us. Just open your phone, read the news, and cower at the chaos of the world around us. Why can't we seem to fully fix it? Because in our sinfulness, we're part of it. And we lack faith in the only one who can help. Our only hope is a miraculous intervention. How desperately we need a savior. What an incredible joy then that just as we share in the problem, we can share in the solution. That this was always Jesus' mission. That as Callum said two weeks ago, both his glory and his suffering are certain. In fact, they're intrinsically linked for one will be revealed through the other. That's what Jesus is saying here. The Son of Man that we sung about earlier is a direct reference to a vision of Jesus in Daniel chapter 7, where we see him, the judge of all, one with all glory, authority, and sovereign power, this Son of Man, the Son of Man, will be handed over to men. This representative man, the new and better Adam, will be killed by men in the greatest act of sacrificial service ever known. He will knowingly and resolutely head to the cross where he will die bearing the sin and deserved wrath of all who trust Jesus as Lord. At which point, the judgment deserved for our sinfulness will be imputed to Jesus and in return, we will be clothed only in his righteousness. And we'll be reconciled to our heavenly God. Evil and our greatest enemy, death, will be defeated forever. 
But first, Jesus must die. The only lasting solution to our sinfulness is the sacrifice of Jesus. This is the heart of the Christian gospel and the crux of our passage this evening. Have you ever thought that at any time Jesus could have returned to heavenly glory, gone to be with the Father and rightfully judged us as those who rejected him? And yet he chose to suffer sacrificially for those he called his own. What incredible love. What tender compassion to bear with the unbelief and perversion of our hearts. Are you listening carefully? Do we understand? The original language actually puts verse 44 in stronger terms than the NIV version we're using. It doesn't just tell us to listen carefully. It tells us to let these words sink into us. For this is the most amazing reality ever known. That Jesus, as was the plan before the formation of the world, being very God, willingly died, and in doing so made a way to reconciliation with the Godhead. And it's been revealed to us in God's word, in full, the Bible, and it's revealed to us here in Luke. Again, as Callum mentioned, we as a church, along with Christians around the world, celebrated Easter last weekend, where we rejoiced at the wonder of this sacrifice. How quickly we forget these wonderful eternal truths and fall into the folly of familiarity. Christian, does this reality, that Christ willingly was sacrificed in our place, in your place, change how we live now? Are we content to choose confusion? Are we content with our sin, content with our stumbling faith, or do we humbly ask Jesus, the author and perfecter of it, to continue to teach us, to give us understanding and sight where we do not yet have it, to let this truth permeate our very being? Because it's emphatic. Failure to understand this means we will never be able to rightfully serve Jesus. The disciples show us that in our passage in like ultra high definition. And if you're not a Christian, you need to hear this. Because in these verses, Luke has given us the certainty of who Jesus is and what his mission is. In the ultimate work of the Messiah Jesus on the cross, bearing the punishment we deserved, we can be freed from the eternal spiritual suffering of separation from God and you can experience this now and forever if by his kindness you trust in him. Do not delay. Why don't you ask Jesus to remove the blinders and give you sight, faith in him. Lastly then, disciples lack humility in Jesus' service. Verse 46, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you who is greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. 
as if the disciples hadn't made it clear that they don't yet understand Jesus' mission, they hammer it home with the most petty of arguments. They're actually bickering about who would be the greatest among them. You can imagine it, can't you? As they kind of argue with each other, you've got three who have just been up the mountain, well, that was pretty great, we must be greater than you. You've got others potentially boasting in the people they have been able to heal. Despite Jesus laying out his imminent death, they take proximity to him as solely an elevation of status and not a call to service. They just want to be great. And Jesus will show them the exact opposite, that true greatness is sacrificial service. And so he addresses two related issues that the disciples, and often we, struggle to wrap our heads and our hearts around. Proud promotion, firstly, in verse 46 to 48, and personal power from 49 to the end. Firstly, proud promotion. Remember, the disciples have been equipped to do miraculous things in the service of Jesus. And they're arguing. I wonder if they're trading stories, trying to one-up each other in a live game of disciple top trumps. And Jesus knows their thoughts. Of course he does. He's been around them long enough to spot their stupidity. But more than that, he's part of the triune God who formed them in their mother's wombs and knows them more intimately than they know themselves. And so in this kind of ultimate power move, he takes a small child and places them beside him. Whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. Now, when we see a small child, our natural reaction is is to gather around. It's to look after them, especially if they're cute. Children are generally loved and lifted up in our society. But in the first century, a child is treated with a, a kind of degree of irrelevance down the social hierarchy. And so by Jesus telling his disciples to welcome this child, they're being asked to welcome the lowly, to raise the status of one with no inherent worth. You see, if the lowest are great, there's no space for the debate, is there? And Jesus is clear. In doing so, we welcome him, the one who embodied lowliness on an altogether different level and therefore welcome the Father who sent him. That is what discipleship looks like. And it's in stark contrast to the disciples' own attitude towards greatness. And it's completely at odds with our and our society's definition of greatness. We want to climb. We want our service to be seen. And yet they're told by welcoming a child, they are serving for the sake of Jesus not to gain respect or earn admiration. An obvious place to think about this is how we serve as a local church. There is so much that goes on behind the scenes. Many of us couldn't name the people who serve as Sunday school teachers or on tech um, at the back each Sunday or on the countless other rotors that go on behind the scenes to make this church run. Perhaps you feel like you're, you're living, your serving of Jesus is unseen. Perhaps you long for a different role that's more visible in church or where he has placed you in the world. 
Well, Jesus is clear. You should be encouraged that you are welcoming the Lord as you faithfully serve God the Son and God the Father who sent him. What greater honor is there? But equally, we should all be prepared to serve in any way, for there's no hierarchy of discipleship. We don't progress in the kingdom of God. No, in clear view of his sacrifice, as we see the greatness of Jesus, we gladly serve for his sake. And likewise, we corporately as a church should be the most counter-cultural place in the world, where the least important in society's eyes are welcomed. There's a lot of us here, especially on a Sunday morning. Do you chat to the same three people after the service? Or do you welcome those that are different to you, those that you think have nothing to offer? Because we serve as those with nothing to offer. Not so we can pat ourselves on the back. And neither to kind of pointlessly do the most menial task we can in a sort of legalist race to the bottom. No, but because we are following and honoring our Lord Jesus, who made us dust, co-heirs with him. We're no longer our own because of the cross of Christ has changed the Christian's reality forever. And we can only serve him because he has first rescued us. He has removed our spiritual blindness and unbelief and allowed us to share in his mission. So we're to serve him in humble sacrificial service of others. But it wasn't just proud promotion that disciples were after. They secondly sought personal power. Next, uh, John chips in. Interestingly, one of the three who was up the mountain with Jesus. And And he says, Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. John wants a monopoly on the service of Jesus, doesn't he? After all, the disciples were the 12 that were chosen, so no one else can possibly serve Jesus in this way, right? And again, Jesus shuts this notion down. He's clear, all faithful service of the king should be welcomed. Now, this isn't a how-to on gospel partnership, but it does expose our desires to be self-serving and sinfully tribal that can so easily breed a sense of superiority. Because here the disciples are not concerned with the service of Jesus, they're concerned in serving their own status. Likewise, we need to hold our, our favorite ministries lightly as we serve the king. And we also need to avoid a tribalism of Charlotte Chapel as some way superior somehow to other ministries that we aren't part of. We don't have it all right. In God's incredible kindness, we're part of some fantastic networks and partnerships. And we've been blessed to be able to plant churches. But the danger is we go, well, we're part of the FIEC and We're part of Pillar, and we planted some churches, so if we draw a little Venn diagram of all those things, the people right in the middle, they're the only ones who are doing ministry right. No, that's silly. God doesn't have any need for our service. And as we've seen seen that already. And yet he chooses to include us in the expansion of his kingdom. That is a joy to bask in. 
and leaves no room for us to build little ministry sandcastles, either individually or corporately, and certainly leaves no room to boast in our success, let alone to demean the efforts of faithful service of Jesus and others. Fundamentally, disciples of Jesus are to be humble as they serve him. Disciples of They've had a bit of a shocker this evening, haven't they? They seem to have got it consistently wrong at every turn. They failed to have faith. They failed to understand Jesus' mission. And they failed to, as a result, serve him correctly. What is the solution? Well, it's actually the same if you call yourself a Christian or not. It's to let these words sink deep into our souls to be certain of the person and mission of Jesus. To see the greatness of one who dealt finally with the greatest problem of our unbelieving and perverse generation, our sin. And in light of this, discipleship can never be about us. Can never be about how many steps we think we're taking forward. It's about seeing the greatness of Jesus and humbly serving him, the servant savior. I pray that be the case for us today and forever. Let's pray. Dear God and heavenly father, thank you for the clarity that Luke gives us on the person and the mission of Jesus. Lord, thank you for how you have delivered us through Jesus on the cross, that you have opened the eyes of those who follow you. Lord, by your grace, would you continue to do that? Give us eyes to see and have faith in him. Give us ears and hearts that are receptive such that your word would sink deep, deep into our lives. And the Lord, that we would be a people who humbly serve the king, not in pursuit of status, but in service of him as we see his greatness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing again as we close our formal time together. Please stand.